Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Greg, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on because your book is like my top top book. So like, I, I can't believe we're sitting here and we're going to have an interview and I'm actually talking to the author who, who wrote my favorite book. So welcome to the show. Steve, it's really a pleasure to be with you. And what a what a fine compliment. Thank you. Yeah. So really, so here's two books that I always talk about. Essentialism and How to Fly a Horse. Those are like my two like go-to books. And in <laughs> fact, when uh when I was CFO, you know, I ordered a, a stack of these books. And whenever I met people for like lunch or they came into my office, I'd go back and forth in between the two. I'd say, okay, here's essentialism or here's how to fly a horse. Sometimes I just give them both. But so I love the book. I'm I'm ready to dive more into that. But more importantly, you know, after we talk a little bit about essentialism to set the stage, I want to get into this new book, Effortless, because there's a lot of like, oh, aha moments that stem from that. Well, so, um, thank you. Oh, go ahead. No, no, thank you. So so looking forward to it. I haven't always heard essentialism paired with how to fly a horse. So I'm I'm quite curious about that pairing. Uh, what, why, what was it you found in how to fly a horse? Well, how to fly a horse. Like what I, what I got from that is, um, have you read the book before? No, I'm not familiar with it, but I I know, you know, it's the secret history of creation, invention, and discovery, Kevin Ashton. Yep. And the idea behind that is it's like, look, people aren't just born creative geniuses, like creation and, and being creative is, is also is disguised in hard work, right? So the the whole you know thesis of the book is: look, we can all be creative, but it takes iteration, it takes hard work, and, and nobody's just a genius um, by birth. And so there's just a lot of really good stories in that, and I, I think it's a, a great story for each of us. Where it's like, hey, if we focus on the right things, we put in the the right type of effort, and we don't give up, like we can create some amazing things. And so it it, it paired with essentialism, where it's like. Okay, yeah, if you want to go out and do this, if you want to go out and impact in the world, you can't be chasing all the good things, right? Yeah, I, I, I love this idea. It used to be, I was just talking to Simon Sinek about this, and he was saying it used to be that people would say, oh, you had genius with you when you did that. And that morphed over time into someone is a genius mm-hmm. rather than you have a genius with you. You know, and that's a really important difference. I mean, if you have to be a genius in order to do breakthrough work, you know, the greatest work of your life, something that really matters, then that's very fixed in its view, and it's uh, it, it feels like it's a rare thing. And and if well, if I what what happens if I'm not, then I guess I can't make that kind of contribution. But if you if it's something you have to have the genius with you, then it, it opens up possibilities that that if you get into the right mindset if you approach it in the right way that you can do something wonderful and i think that's something you know under the surface in essentialism and also in this uh, the, the new book that i wrote a couple of months ago um, effortless and it's you know that in 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 both books there is the the assumption you can do things that seem impossible now if you approach it with a, a new mindset a new skill set um, and, and your talk of how to fly a horse really reminds me of a case today I came across for this. This is, um, if you wanted, this is uh, the Crema Prize. This is uh, an industrialist in in United Kingdom who wanted to encourage innovation, specifically in human powered flight. And he he thought it would be no problem. I mean, this was only ten years before people were walking on the moon, so it's an aeronautical era by any estimation. But 17 years go past and 
nobody has won this prize. And one of the reasons is because everyone who's going at it is trying with a big institution behind them, whole team, well-funded, and they build these beautiful uh, machines with, uh, with wooden ribs and plastic casings and all of this. And that all sounds like the right thing to do, but it's only when, it's only when Paul McCready comes into the story uh, who's he's in debt. He's a highly motivated lean entrepreneur, we should say, because he, he has to get the money. <laughs> and so he, he, he just, and he's, he's got nothing to help him, but so friends and family, his young son is his pilot, his test pilot. And he stares at the problem that no one else seems to solve. And he says, everyone's trying to solve the wrong problem. Instead of focusing on building one of these beautiful, sophisticated machines, what you need to do is you need to build a machine that can look as bad as you like, but it can crash and be rebuilt fast and cheap. That's the criteria. And that's what he creates, the, the, the Gossamer Condor. And he said, this thing would crash and five minutes later, they'd be back up in the air. You'd stick some broom handle on, tape it together and go again. And so in one day, they would test their flight more than some of his competitors in six months. And so it went until he won the prize, so a 223rd attempt, you know, and then two years later won the second prize and, and all this progress. So, so there's something about, about this theme of making failure cheap and expensive so that you can make progress on the things that matter most. That I that somehow your 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 comment made me uh, made me think of here. No, and, and that's really fascinating. And, and I think what's interesting, you know, I mentor a lot of individuals, you know, and and I have the opportunity to work with a lot of people, and people mentor me. And and I I think it's um what, what's interesting is that some people would look at that right. They look at him winning the prize or coming up with this prototype and say, "Wow, you know, like you're a genius. I can't believe like you came up with that." Mm. And, but they don't see the 200 plus times of failure, like you're talking about. And I think that's like, that's the whole idea is that oftentimes we can look at other people's lives, especially like in the society we live in today, where comparison just runs rampant and you just look at somebody and you, but you look at that point in time when they're successful, but you don't see all the effort and all the failure and everything else that came before then to get them to that point. So I, I, to me, when I hear that, it gives me a, a lot of like faith into the future. It gives me a lot of like confidence in myself. Even when I beat myself up to say, look, I could do hard things and it, it's going to cost a lot of failure in, in the process. But to your point, like, how do you fail really cheaply? And how do you just like keep going and, and stick to something in, until you reach that success? Yes. And, and one of the I mean, one of the, the themes I began in, in essentialism and then carried forward into effortless is, is really how can you, well, I found that there were two ways of thinking about execution of what's most essential. Mm-hmm. And I make this point in essentialism, but I make it in sort of the last quarter of the book. And I think partially as a result of that, it, it, it's almost like it got missed. So even people that have read the book or even read it multiple times, it's like they didn't quite hear this. And it's a really distinctly important point because it's not just doing the right thing. It's doing it in the right way. And I have found that to be the case because of how many otherwise would be essentialists that I know of, have worked with, who wake up to the idea of essentialism. They say, okay, wow, look, the whole world isn't, built around almost equally important things. Actually, some things are essential. Very few things are essential. Most things are trivial noise. And and we've got to focus on what really matters. Okay, so that's sort of mindset one. But then they carry with them a whole set of baggage about how to go about execution, about what execution looks like. And they don't know they're carrying that. It's so, it's such a dominant assumption. They just carry it in. But these otherwise, you know, these, let's say, uh, insecure overachievers uh, want to achieve through, well, they think the only way to achieve is grinding self-sacrifice 24-7, hustling, that kind of thing. And, And what I have discovered in my research, in my practice, and then through personal experience as well, is that there are two 
ways to approach execution, two parts. One is the one we're describing. And, and the problem with it is that people burn out before they achieve their results. Uh, they sort of do a boom and bust approach to execution. They go bigger than they, and they get exhausted and or, or discouraged or it's just not sustainable and they go off path. And, and the other is this much steadier, more effortless pace where you can sustain the effort over time because you're not burning yourself out, uh, you know, uh, all along the way. And, and, that, and it matters as much as the essential work itself that you discover that second path. Uh, otherwise, you won't get there. And, and right it. now, it has this power of relevancy because I think almost everybody is either burned out or on the edge of being burned out after a year and a half of this pandemic. And so I think it's really timely not only to identify what is essential, but we identify how can I pursue this in a way that I can break through to the highest point of contribution, but without burning out. Yeah, I know. And, and you bring up a lot of great points. And I want to unpack this, this idea a little bit more. So let, let's start with essentialism. So a lot of listeners, they're probably sitting here thinking, look, it's not a, it's not a problem of doing good things or bad things, right? So I, I, I think we could skip that part. I, I think a lot of the listeners, it's not like they're like, oh, should I go to work today or sit on the couch, right? That's not really what we're talking about here. It's you have these good things, you have these better things, you have the best things, which are the essential things. And for high achievers, just a lot of stuff comes onto their plate. Invitations come their way, um, information comes their way, opportunities come their way. And it's really difficult to know what to say yes to and what to say no to just because that's in their nature. And that, that's really like the, the, the essence of essentialism, correct? And, and maybe you can expound upon that a little bit more. Yeah, sometimes I think about this as, a, a, as the paradox of success that in phase one, a highly competent driven person gets focused. You know, they, mm-hmm. this is what I want to do. This is what I'd like to accomplish. I'd like to distinguish myself in some way that leads to success. Uh, the clarity has a, a powerful effect uh, causative effect in, in helping us to become distinctive. Uh, and, and then with that distinctive competence uh, comes opportunity. Uh, you know, lots more requests come to a person as they become more successful. And that all sounds like the right problem to have, you know, good also. And so they can do it. They're capable. We'll, we'll give them more and more. And the risk is, and it's a predictable risk is that you start to, get stretched too thin at work or at home or both. It means that you start to maybe be busy, but not necessarily productive because perhaps you try to keep 20 people a little bit happy instead of doing one thing that would really help you to contribute in a whole higher way to a hundred future people. You know, mm-hmm. so you, 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 you're living in your inbox and there's so much coming at you, but you're not doing that deep work and, focused, concentrated work that, that will really matter most. And maybe they start to feel like their day is being hijacked by other people's agenda for them. Uh, they're still highly engaged, but they're on the edge of exhaustion. They're working. They're, they're part of the hit squad, hardworking, intelligent, talented group of people that are running out of space. Now, that's sort of the, that's like the problem of the, the paradox of success is that all the things that led to success breed so much, you know, what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. And so the things that led to success are undermined by success. And so what we have to do in both essentialism and effortless have really defined around this solving this problem is how can we become successful at success? Or, or in other words, what helped us to become successful? Like what got us here won't get us there. And so we have to keep rethinking and relearning success, particularly becoming more and more selective in what we say yes to, so that there's even space to imagine what the next level of contribution would be, and space to be able to then do something about it and go after it. And it's like, basically, successful people choose when they're going to plateau based on how what their criteria you know, for yes is. Mm-hmm. And, and what's challenging is that the more successful and more contribution a person makes, the more selective they'll need to be so that things they said yes to easily, in fact, wanted 
to do a year or two ago, they now have to question and, and maybe make a trade-off. And it has to keep on happening. And, and, and most people don't do this. So they, you know, they, they become consumed at a certain level. Nothing wrong with that unless they wish to get to a higher level. Uh, and that's what you know, I'm, I'm so fascinated with is, is helping otherwise successful people to be able to break through to the next level of success and contribution. Well, and let's talk about this. So there's this idea of selfishness, right? And in the world, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, you're selfish or don't be selfish. And then sometimes we beat ourselves up and we say, dang, we're so selfish. And, and when you think about it, like, look, we're all responsible for creating our own worlds here on earth, right? So we have that unique opportunity. So our world, we get to decide, you know, what does our world look like? And, you know, who's going to be in that world? And what are we going to do in this world? Like, and we, so we create our own little mini worlds and our own little universes here on earth. And, you know, in the pursuit of this, there are things that we need to say no to, right? And we have to be disciplined in our approach. But don't you think that could come across the wrong way? And, and, and that's kind of the, the interesting thing is where somebody will say, hey, look, you're being so selfish. But it's kind of like that that whole metaphor of putting your oxygen mask on on the plane first before you help anybody else. But don't you think you could get, if you're not careful and if you listen to that idea of selfishness, then you know you could be creating other people's worlds and doing all these things for other people and filling up your schedule for everybody else, but you're missing out on the opportunity to really fulfill your purpose here on earth and like to, to reach your potential because you're creating everybody else's world. What's your thought on that? Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Well, I think that, you know, my primary frame on life is not saying no to everyone and everything without really thinking about it, right? That would be a book called Noism. Um, <laughs> you know, this is essentialism. And so if you say, look, my lens is what's essential first, uh, then uh, that, I, I mean, I think that service and contribution are inherent in what's mm-hmm. essential. I think purpose begins with service to someone in in some way. So in a sense, the entire conversation begins with that frame. What is your highest contribution? What's the best service that you can make? Now, the question then is, what trade-offs do I need to make in order to make the best possible contribution and service I can make in this life? Like, how can I fulfill that purpose fully? And so the, the first place to look is to say, well, what non-essentials am I over-investing in? And, mm-hmm. and that may not be saying no to someone who's asking for something, right? If somebody, if somebody calls me up right now and they have a need and it's urgent and they, you know, my you know, instinct and, and hope is to, is to serve them if I possibly can, you know, I want to be of service to people. So I think that's an important frame, but what about like right now in my life, I have a major project. I have been making slow progress on it over the last month. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, it's increasingly become clear to me that this is the most important project. Like it, it was one of, Im, it was an important project from the beginning, but as time has gone on, I can see that getting it done will have a disproportionate impact, uh, you know, potentially for many years in the future. So I can now understand it. It's now become clear. It's the priority project. Well, now I need to make trade-offs in my life. I, you know, if I wish to make proper progress on it, if I wish to, let's say, double or triple the progress I've been making on it. So, so get this completed within the next, certainly within the next month, maybe even within two weeks from now, right? Like that means I need to change how I'm ordering things. Mm-hmm. Well, then of course it's not selfish to say no to something that's genuinely less important. And that could be all sorts of things. That could be my own projects that I would like to make progress on. Then I say, no, those can wait because this is more important. Sure. It might mean that there are appointments where people ask, oh, can you know, can you can you be on this? Can you do this event? Can you do this thing? You say, well, we can talk about that, but not until this project's finished. So, you know, you can get back to me after this thing is done. That's not selfish because if you've done the prioritization right, 
what would be more selfish and what would be odder is to say no to the most essential, the highest priority, the thing that would make the greatest contribution in order to say yes to something that makes a lesser contribution. That's really the, in a way, it's a key awakening in discovering essentialism is that every yes is not just a no to something else, which clearly it is, Mm -hmm. but that every yes is no to everything else, at least in that moment. You know, if, 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 if I spend, if I spend, you know, three hours doing a non-essential event instead of this project I'm describing, then, then I'm making a fool's bargain. I'm violating something that matters far less. It might still matter, but far less than this other. And, and so a lot of people are saying yes without a sense of that, the, the deep consequences. You can't say yes to a non-essential thing without saying no to an essential thing. And that is the violation we need to be most concerned about. No, that, that's such great advice. I mean, so let's tie this into business when it comes to strategy. I mean, a lot of organizations, um, you know, they, they try to diversify their businesses, especially like after the pandemic, they're like, oh, wow, you know, like we really got blindsided here. So we need to diversify or we need to pursue these other initiatives. And what I see is that, you know, organizations can go, you know, overboard and have too many initiatives. Um, they can pursue too many different types of business ideas. And um, they think that they're, you know, mitigating risk and they're diversifying their portfolios and everything else. But in some ways they're straddling, either they're trying to pursue multiple strategies that conflict with each other, um, or they just have too much on their plate. So they, they can't do anything really, really well. Um, have you come across this and, and what type of advice would you have in a business strategy setting? I think that the I mean, there's there's a few different keys here. But I mean, one is one is to be really clear about the priority, the strategic priority of your business. A priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular, the one first priorist thing. And according to Peter Drucker, it stayed singular for the next half a millennium, 500 years before people started speaking of priorities. And and there's good reason for that lag because it's hard to quite define the meaning of priorities once you know its origin, because how can you have very, very many, very first before all other things, things. And so, and yet most of it has been to meetings, business meetings where somebody said, you know, no sense of irony at all. Here are my 34 priorities. They all have to be done, uh, you know, before everything else, you know, this is a sort of uh, illogic of non-essentialism that that we have to be so careful about. If you can get clear and, and make a strategic decision, get an essential intent that says, okay, this one decision will make a thousand decisions for me. This is what we do. And this is what we don't do. This is who we are. And this is who we aren't. This is who we serve and who we don't serve. These are the biggest decisions. And you could make them and get them wrong and then remake them. Like there's no reason you have to set them in stone, watch them not work and never adjust them but that at any given period of time, you have clarity about those things so that you can innovate around them, so that you can build strategic advantage around them. Just think of, you know, there's this, uh, you know, fascinating piece of research on this. If you, you, well, set it this this way, if if you and I got in a time machine and we went back to like 1972 and we said, okay, well, what we we get out, we get to put $1 into each of the S&P 500 companies and, we get back in the time machine, go back 30 years, forward 30 years rather, we, it's 2002, which company would have given the largest return on investment, right? On that dollar, which would give us the largest return? And, and I've asked groups all over the world and, and especially financial groups um, that question, you know, just out of curiosity. And, and sometimes I have uh, semi-tortured the group because they will come back with many, many reasonable answers, but all of them wrong. You know, oh, is it Microsoft? Is it Apple? Is it Google? Is it Exxon? Is it Coca-Cola? Could it be McDonald's? Could it be? And on and on the list goes. And the only way anyone ever gets the answer is if I give it or if they cheat it and they go online, right? They finally just put us out of this misery and they look. And the answer is Southwest Airlines. And the question is, what well, did they achieve that through trying to be everything to everyone? Or did they achieve it through this, you know, clear essential intent? Well, theirs was right, the low cost, the low cost carrier 
in the airline industry. Okay, did they then say, okay, we'll we'll do that the way everyone else is trying to do it, but just for less money? No, they they built, they made trade-offs that competitors weren't making. At first, that made them look a little foolish, and they were sort of laughed at by the big carriers. And until 10 years into the exercise, they start to be demonstrably successful. And Continental actually comes along and they say, well, put these guys out of business. We will, the classic straddled strategy. And they said, okay, we're going to create Continental Light, which will Mm -hmm. be a service not separate to Continental, but simultaneous with it. So it confused everybody involved internally, all the employees, externally, everything. And they ended up losing $150 million, firing the CEO and setting records in the airline industry for complaints per day. So that's you know, that's a, you know, it's a simple but real case study in the difference between getting clear on your essential intent and making the strategic trade-offs that that allow you to differentiate and a strategy that says, well, we're not going to differentiate. We're going to just, you know, us as well. We'll sure. just do everything. Uh, and, and so I, I, I see that, at, you know, that's one level of analysis. But I also see this in most small businesses make the same error, right? Most individuals in their own lives make the same error. If they, they get pulled into FOMO, well, if they're doing that, I mean, that looks good. And I guess we'll follow that. And, and with very surface, shallow understanding of why something's even working for a competitor, they just add it to their own mix. Well, I'll do that as well. Oh, uh, well, that person's doing well in real estate as well. Okay, I guess I'll do real estate as well. Okay, this is the strategy they're pursuing. I'll do that as well, as well, as well. (laughs) That is not what makes for successful strategy. This this huge mix into core portfolio is a a great error uh, in in judgment. Uh, And so what, what we want, even if we're diversifying, is to be careful to operate in our circle of competence, what we really know about, what we really understand and what we you know, can, can make a long-term bet on. Uh, so so you, know, you think of Warren Buffett, uh, quintessential essentialist. You know, he said, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be right a thousand times. He said, so I'm, I'm, maybe I'm going to be right 10 or 20 times in my whole life, but I want to be right and go big when I am right. Uh, and so his whole, he says his, his, his investment strategy borders on lethargy of all the words to use. He's looking for the right few things that are clear, definite yeses. He goes in big and he holds them for the long run. Yeah. And I, I think that's interesting because, you know, I, I had a guest, uh, Mahir Desai, he's a Harvard professor. He was on the, the podcast um, early on and he wrote an article recently that I came across and is talking about optionality. And I think like so often people, you know, use the phrase, oh, keep your options open, explore your options. And I think like when you have too many options, you know, and, and you have all this optionality in your life, I mean, it, it can almost lead you down very bad paths or like you're saying, you're just, you're pursuing all this stuff but you're not really making the progress that you can if, if you could focus on more of the essential items. Well, that's it exactly. The overvaluing of optionality is something you have to be careful about. Um, the you know, Essentialism has three main pillars. Explore what's essential, eliminate the non-essential, and make execution as effortless as possible. Like that's the structure, and you do that on an ongoing basis. That's the disciplined pursuit of less you know, in action as those three uh, those three uh, skill sets. And, and and that first is important. You do want to explore. Optionality has a place, but we've got to also remember that that our optionality has advanced and increased exponentially. I mean, absolute, that's no exaggeration, right? Like since the birth of the internet, it's still the news, right? Even let's say we're 30 years into it. Uh, it's still the news. It's still changed everything and, and continues to change everything. Even though we're sort of so used to it, it's like we, we've, we've forgotten how, how massively, what upheaval that is. Uh, and and it, it has all sorts of advantages. I, I'm, not, I'm in no way a Luddite about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to also recognize that if you have increase of options of where to spend your time, of what you can do, of what you can learn about, of it, to to almost literally infinite levels, but your decision processes and your decision criteria 
is as immature as it was before the internet, you know, or as limited as as general, as broad as it was before the internet, well, then you're going to have the problems we're talking about. You're going to end up with shallow, shallow and broad portfolios where you're doing way too many things. You're not developing competence in, in, in each of them. And so you're making a millimeter progress in a million different directions. And so, and so I think it is absolutely you know, vital uh, that, we, that we think very selectively. Back to now that we're talking Buffett, I mean, he said, he's quoted as having said that the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything. And think about what that would look like for him. I mean, just literally for him for a moment. What, what do you think the requests on his time are? Oh, they're probably huge. Yeah. What do we think the requests are to invest in, in other people's companies? I mean, how, how much incoming do you think there is? Sure. So, so what's he doing to make sure that he isn't buried by it? When he first met Bill Gates, one of, the, one of their very first meetings, they were talking about this and they were talking, comparing calendars. So Bill Gates is the CEO of Microsoft at the time in the midst of that, you know, sort of just extraordinary rise of that company, the rise of Microsoft uh, all over the world. And, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway is, is also exceedingly successful. And they compare calendars and Warren Buffett takes his calendar out of his pocket. It's a paper calendar. And he shows him that week's schedule. Mm-hmm. And the only thing on the calendar is for him to get his hair cut. There is in that story something so eye-opening because that's not what people's calendars look like, right? And, and that's not what people's calendars look like who have far less success than Warren Buffett. They're just filling up their lives, filling up their schedule almost as an evidence of success. The busyness is an evidence of importance. Sure. The burnout is a badge of honor. You know, that yeah, Warren Buffett is not seeing it through that those you know lenses at all. So he's being, you know, he he's he's trying to protect his time and his space and his thinking. And in fact, there's a funny, relatively up-to-date example of this. You know, many people will be familiar with. I'm not I'm not advocating it. I just uh, but we'll be familiar with Tony Robbins uh, winning the money game or uh, something like that. And in it, uh, the, the the section I I went to when I when the book first came out was I wanted to read the Warren Buffett entry. I was so curious because of these things we're talking about. So the entry about around Warren Buffett, basically, you know, basically Mr. Robbins is, has interviewed all of these top investors and, and Warren Buffett's one of them. And, and in it, basically the, the, the whole entry is saying Warren Buffett has repeatedly refused to be interviewed for this book. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the gist of it. He said, I was speaking at with Warren Buffett at an event and I tried to grab an, you know, the side it, and say, hey, listen, you know, I, I'm doing this book and here are all the people that are involved and he's naming, dropping all the top names and I would just love to have you add you as to it. And, and Warren just said, oh, I think I've, I've said everything I could possibly say on that subject. The polite no. Right. You know, the, 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 the smiling, unapologetic no. Mm-hmm. And, and literally he's not, he's, not, he's not in the book. From, for, he isn't interviewed in the book. He didn't put his time into that because he had something else that to him is a higher contribution. He's not doing that selfishly. He's doing it so that he can continue to do better and better at the competence he has and make as a result, a far higher contribution. No, I, I, I like that. And so let's talk about how this relates to you, because this is the part of the book. So I'm listening to effortless while I'm running. Cause I'm a nerd like that. I listen to audiobooks when I run and I got I like to this it. point and I was like, yes, thank you, Greg. Thanks for being vulnerable. Because I imagine before essentialist came out, like obviously you're, you're probably a popular guy and well-loved, but then you write this book and it resonates with so many people. I'm sure like the, the number of requests that started coming your way or people that were like approaching you or emails or whatever started to increase exponentially. And, and I know in the, in effortless, you're saying, look, I stripped everything down. I was like practicing what I was preaching and I got down to the essential activities, but I still struggled. So maybe you can expound on this a little bit um, for the audience. And then we could get into more of this idea of effortless. You, you know, you, you describe it. Well, I was already feeling, well, you know, that old, um, the old metaphor we've heard of, of, of the big rocks theory, right? That says, if you put in the big rocks first, 
there's space for them. And then you put the small rocks in. That's like the less important things in your life. And maybe even sand, the trivial things. If you, if you put the order right, geometrically it fits. And if you, if you, if you put the, the small rocks in first and then wait to put the big rocks in last, then it doesn't fit. Right. We've all seen that mess before. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I, you know, in a, in a lot of ways believe that, right. Like put the most essential things first. And, and that's, you know, that's a better way of approaching life than the alternative. However, I found myself with a new challenge, which is, yeah, but what if you have too many big rocks? <laughs> you know, what, what do you do then? Uh, and a lot of people, I mean, what a lot of people do is they put those big rocks down. You know, that, that's like, well, I'm trying to build this new business. So that's a big rock. And my health, I can see it there, but there's no room for the health. So I'll put the health down. Or, or they say, okay, well, I'm going to you know, same thing, entrepreneur in some way. And I want to, well, my relationship with my wife, with my, uh, with my husband, with my children. Okay, that they'll understand. And, and so they just put the other big rocks down. And I found myself already feeling that, not so much necessarily those, but just feeling the tension, the strain, the cracks in the big rocks theory. And then I had a family emergency where one of my daughters became suddenly very severely ill um, and, and inexplicably so. And with all the agony that that can bring, I suddenly just was like, well, you know, then I need to learn something else. You know, I don't want to be limited to a strategy that says, well, you just got to put everything, you know, all these essential things down and hope that they'll be okay and pick them up later. And so that extremity became a great university opportunity, right? An educational opportunity to learn to say, okay, is there a better way? And it became very clear. And I mentioned it previously, just very briefly, but it became very clear, clearer than it ever been to me that there really are two parts to execution. That one takes the hard things in life and makes them harder than they need to be. And the other takes those hard things in life and says, well, well, how, how am I making it harder than it needs to be? You know, how am I overcomplicating it? How am I being more of a perfectionist around this than is helpful or useful? Uh, how am I over-engineering, even over-exerting? You know, might there be easier, better, smarter approaches? And, and, and if you can't work any harder, then you are faced with that question. Well, how could I make this easier? I mean, you've sure. got to find an easier, smarter, better path. And, and everybody listening to this, right? Let's say approximately everybody listening to this wants to make a 10x contribution. Mm-hmm. But nobody listening to this can work 10 times harder. Sure. So as soon as you have that problem, as soon as you're in that category, that's what you know. That's who effortless is for. It's not about not putting an effort. It's about figuring out how to put in your effort in the right way, so that you can get a not just a return on investment, but you know ROE, a return on effort. Mm-hmm. What if you could get a return on effort that is 10x or 100x or even more, rather than just always saying, "Okay, well, I need to work 10x harder." You know, and 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 I what I find I feel very, you know, optimistic having gone down this journey, uh, for what it helped me to do in my life, what it helped my family to do, you know, surviving and even thriving through this uh, this you know fairly catastrophic situation, and uh, and 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 I'm I'm more confident now because I've been able to codify it and explain it in this new book that it can be portable and can be used to great advantage. Uh, you know, in, in, in the business world and beyond. Well, I think that's why both books are such a breath of fresh air because, you know, the talking heads out there first before essentialism, the, the idea was, you know, get out there and do more, do more, right? Like just take on everything and, and just, you know, start five businesses right now. You just need to grind, grind, grind. And then it's like, okay, here's essentialism. Look, that's probably not the best approach. You should probably focus on, you know, the best things, right? Yep. And then here's a, here's effortless where you're like, okay, I'm focused on the best things. And it's like, you just need to grind. Right. And like, if nothing's worthwhile, um, nothing that's like easy is worthwhile. So it, it's gotta be tough and it's gotta have friction and it, you just have to like push through and just like endure. Right. And, it, and that's the whole idea. But like, I've, I've been in those places in my life. Like when I was a CFO, you know, I had a ton of responsibility and every single minute of my day was like scheduled. Right. Like I almost had to schedule my bathroom breaks because it's just like meeting after meeting after meeting and this and this and that. I couldn't do anymore. And 
I was stripped down to the the most essential things. And it's like, okay, then then what? I, I think that's it, it's interesting that out there, you know, if you go on YouTube and you listen to like motivational speeches, or there's other there's coaches and other thing, other people out there, and, and they they're saying, look, you know, like you just have to grind, you have to work like 18 hours a day. And if it's not hard, then you're not probably doing the right things. Like, is there some truth to that? And kind of maybe you can explain your thoughts and, and also maybe you could tie in your story where like you had the job in hand. I, I remember you're telling the story in the book, yes. like, look, I got yes. this job in hand. All I got to do is go present it to the board yeah. and like, yeah. it's easy. And then you like overcomplicated yeah, it yeah, and yeah. you lost it. So like tie all that but, together. Well, I mean, look, if, if somebody's not doing anything, then of course, putting in more effort is going to produce better results. I mean, really, almost literally, that's true. Do something. If you're not exercising at all and you do something, you'll get better results. So I'm not, you know, effortless isn't primarily written to somebody who's just like, like I, you know, I just cannot get off the couch. I mean, sure. it could help that person as well because sometimes people are on the couch, so to speak, because they have in their mind something so overwhelming, they quit before they begin. And so that even there, it could be relevant because sometimes what appears to be lazy is, is something else going on. But, but primarily, this is for people who, who I just described, right? They're, they're highly engaged, but still on the edge of exhaustion. So they need a new mental model. And unfortunately, uh, both in sort of the underpinnings of the Puritanism that partially birthed the modern Americas, there is this virtue which I completely support. The, you know the gospel of work. Uh, you know, you, you, if you want to to turn your uh, ideas into you know into dynamic reality, then then you've got to work for them. Yes, of course, I believe this. I want this. I do this myself, and I teach it to my children. And mm-hmm. you know that doesn't mean you have to then go all the way with the Puritan idea to distrust the easy, to say well easy equals lazy. Sure. It doesn't. I mean, it literally doesn't, right? If you look them up in the dictionary, lazy is not willing to work, not willing to put in the effort, I should say. Whereas an easy is that something doesn't require effort. And so let me first give, let me share maybe a couple of stories. One, one the one you asked me for, right? A failure in my part. And then maybe a success of someone that, that illustrates what's possible. Okay. The the failure for me, I mean, you you gave the, the the Reader's Digest version. This is a this is a technology company. It's up and coming. It's, it was already well known, but you knew the next few years were going to be fascinating. They they wanted content that I'd already uh, delivered, uh, that they were very you know delighted with, uh, you know, in a different context. And they said, look, just come and do this for for our team. And this is part of the first of three events we'd like you to do, but with the real intention of being with a partner with us for two or three years as we go through this transition. So the whole thing is set up. Everybody's happy. Everyone's on board. But because maybe I thought, well, it's this isn't really a challenge or hard to deliver this. And so and so I felt, well, that can't be creating value. And I distrusted it. And so the night before I thought, well, well what if I, what is this new thinking that I've been doing? And, and maybe, maybe the new will be better and I'll push myself on this. And so I sort of spent a few hours and then I didn't pull an all nighter, but I went very late in the day it, it, into the you know, early hours, um, redoing all my slides, redoing all the handouts. And so the next morning I wake up, I'm foggy, you know, foggy brain. I, you know, I, I'm like emailing them, you know, and then driving and saying, oh, please just print this other handout. And then I do the presentation and I the, the, the slides are behind me. So I have to keep on turning around to see them because I'm not familiar with them. And then one of the slides didn't even connect with the audience. And one person was like, oh, hold on, that doesn't make sense. And of course, I, one, hadn't thought through it as deeply as what I was going to teach to them. And I was foggy, so it was hard to respond. And it just was such a disaster. <laughs> and, and And they, you know, they, they not impolitely canceled the, the the two follow-up sessions and uh and there was the partnership that that would have been and was would have been if I had simply not overexerted. I mean, if I had done almost nothing but just gone as planned, if I had done the first mile instead of trying to obsess about the second, third, and fourth mile, you know, delivery, it would have been a home run. And so it was a, you know, it was failure stolen from the jaws of victory. And, and that sort of overexertion is something that gets less press 
Uh, you know, we don't speak to the dark side of, of work and overwork. Uh, and so as a result, many people, well-intended people, overexert and they move into, you know, the, the point of diminishing returns. Uh, but even worse than that, as in this story, it's negative returns sure. where you're, you're getting much worse results than if you had if you'd worked far less hard. And that is repeated many times over. There's, there's lots and lots of examples of that. Uh, and, and so one of the mindset shifts you have to make, I think, is to go from linear results. You know, well, a linear result is if I don't work today, I don't get paid today, right? Linear results says if, if I want better results, I have to work harder to get more. I, if I want 2x results, I have to work 2x harder, right? It says it's there's a linear relationship between effort and results, right? That's sort of mindset one. Feels very fair, feels reasonable. Sure. But, the, but, but of course, it's not true. It doesn't work like that. It, it temporarily works like that. But then in all the ways we've discussed... The, the, the mindset, of course, that it's not like it's new idea, but it's, it's often underutilized is to move to residual results, effortless results, where results flow to you through various uses of leverage, right? Where you put in one X unit of effort to build something, and then the returns can happen again and again, whether you show up or not, because the system is working for you. And Jessica Jakeley is a friend of mine, a social entrepreneur. She goes to Africa with her then husband and other friends, and they want to make a contribution. And they find an entrepreneur who's working in this linear model, uh, you know, subsistence level. I mean, the epitome of it, because she's just making, uh, you know, she's selling fish and produce on the side of the road. Um, if she doesn't work today, she doesn't get paid today, which means that she can't feed herself or her family. So every day she must put in that effort, the same effort to get the same reward. And she can't afford to get to do anything else so that she could get ahead. So Jessica and, and company say, well, well, what would it take to help you build a little bit of leverage into your business? Uh, and she, they, they figure it all out together and it would cost her about $500 because that's the amount she would need to be able to travel to the fisheries, to work with them, to create this direct flow of goods so that she can cut out the middleman and so on. And so they're about to give her this $500. That itself you know, is clearly going to help one entrepreneur go from, from linear to residual. But then they say, well, what if we did it as a loan? That way, you know, she would be self-sufficient and it could help, let's say, 10 entrepreneurs or, you know, ongoing. And so that's now a 10x impact that they could have by using leverage. And then they say, well, well hold on, if that's such a good idea, why don't we build a, a site that's a, you know, a platform, a website that many people like us and similar minded people could provide microloans uh, and, and, and reinvest them as well. And so now this is the birth story, the, the origin story of Kiva.org. Uh, Kiva.org has now made $1.3 billion worth of loans with a 97% repayment rate. So it's on the one hand, $500 compared to $1.3 billion. And then that literally illustrates the difference, right? I, when I say 10x or 100x, it sounds like it's hyperbole, but it's not. That this is in the range of 2,000x impact that's had because they've moved, you know, deliberately from, you know, a linear mindset to a residual mindset so that relatively speaking, they have achieved effortless results. There's this tremendous impact and it goes on and on and on. Uh, that that can be applied to social entrepreneurship, but also I think to 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 all business and all almost all operations in life. You can run it through those two different lenses and produce, you know, discover the art of effortless results. And and it's it's really important that we discover how to do that if we're in the business of making a better and better contribution. And I, no, and I and I think you're absolutely right. And I think that ties back to what you were saying earlier is about you know, that last section of the book and of essentialism where it's like, look, it, it's doing essential things, but it's doing those things in the right way um, where you can achieve these residual results. And yeah, I, I had Jessica on the, the podcast, um, you know, a few episodes back and what a, what a mindset she has um, when it comes to like these ideas. So, you know, I, I appreciate that, that case study to kind of contrast what you were talking about in your own personal life. I, I think that's great. Okay. Last question before we, we wrap it up. So 
let me talk about something personal here in my life. So I was the CFO of this company and I was super busy and it was really crazy, crazy period of time. And, and before that time, you know, I had this like decade of just like going wild, going crazy. And I have like this personality where it's like, when I get busier, like I add more stuff to my plate. It doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense. I know, but it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm doing my MBA right now. And I'm, you know, I'm traveling across the world and I'm going to write a book. Oh, and I'm, I'm also, my wife's pregnant with our second kid and what I'm going to, train for a marathon too while I'm at it. And it's just, I mean, it's craziness. And that's what I did for the longest period, did the CFO job. And then finally I left and then we moved back to Denver. And you know, the, the big thing was like, and I told myself this, I said, look, I take some time to just like be still, like, I don't have to work. I could take a year off if I wanted to. And at the time my wife's like, well, you can't take a year off. Like you, I bet you can't even go six months without working. And I bet you can't even go a month without working and so on and so forth. Then it got down to, I bet you can't even work, go a week. And then sure enough, the next morning, the day after I left, I woke up at five, did my normal run. And then there I was back working on my next idea. So yeah. I think there's like this idea, like when you're a, a high achiever, you know, to be still, to just like be still and like, listen, and just like be open for opportunities that are going to come our way and to be like, to be able to receive them, it could almost make you feel, cause at least for me, it, it almost made me feel like a slacker where I'm like, dang, I'm a slacker. I'm like a, I'm a loser. I'm not going out there and like achieving all this stuff. I'm not accomplishing anything. And it's kind of this uncomfortable like feeling, but then like logically I'd say, look, Steve, no, this is good. Like, you know, slow down. Let's re like calibrate your life, focus on the most essential things. Then you could really focus on where you're going to have the most impact instead of just going, you're just busy, 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 busy all the time. Your, your cup is running over and, and you don't have any capacity to receive. So what are your thoughts about that? And, and what, what's your advice to people that may be feeling like that, where it's like, well, yeah, if I slow down, then my problems come alive or um, realities come where I don't want to face, or I feel bad about myself because I'm not like accomplishing things. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you just, you identified a few really interesting points there as to why many of us are better and more competent at work and activity than the rest, recuperation, stillness, pausing, uh, you know, all of those things. And it is a competence difference. I mean, if I say, I was just working with a group of young global leaders who are, you know, they're, they're so competent at getting things done. And I said, if I asked all of you to run a marathon, you all could do it. You know exactly how to make those things happen, even if you're not even a runner right now. You just have a certain set of skills well-developed that you know how to do the research, you know how to make it happen, you know how to break it down, you know how to, you know, to set the target, especially if I said it couldn't be done, uh, you know, that you couldn't figure that a way to, to, to shove that into your schedules. You know, I said, here's, here's what I want to share instead is, is um, go take a nap. Sure. That's going to be a bigger challenge. Yeah. That's a bigger challenge. And, and, and so just even contrasting that is, is substantive. It, it demonstrates a competence difference that we have an incompetence at rest and relaxation. And to think about it in those terms is helpful because then you say, oh, I just have to start at level zero. I'm not good at this. I do not know how to rest. I do not know how to take a nap. I do not know, you know how to pause or what relaxes me. And so then you can build zero to one skills. You can like pay attention. Well, when, what does relax me? What things are relaxing for me? Mm-hmm. And then, and then even, even develop like, let's say 10 or 20 things over time, you're observing them in yourself. And, and then you say, okay, so if I wanted to relax for an afternoon or for a day or for a week, here are now a list of those things. And I can construct a day of these activities and over time, what can happen, um, my wife, Anna, and I have done this. And, and slowly what happens is that you can find quite signature things that are themselves fulfilling and rewarding, but not because they are uh, achievement oriented. And, and this is so necessary because achievement can, can fully be an addiction. You know, it, sure. it, it, and, and, you know, the idea of achievement anonymous is, is no joke, right? Like it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a real, it actually is a real thing. And so even if somebody listening to this is like, oh, well, you know, maybe they're in some, some denial, well, that's not me. You know, I'm not as bad as some people. 
it's like, well, the, the rise of the achievement ethic has, has been significant and documented over the last, like, let's say, 30 years. It's the rise of the achievement ethic in the fall of almost, almost all of the values. And so we're bound to be a bit a part of that. And so I would say, you know, the first thing is, is recognize that you need to actually build competence. And that's why it's so uncomfortable. And so as you, as you embrace that, you can discover rewarding, helpful things. Oh, you like to read these certain kinds of books. They relax you. That's, that's feels, feels sustaining. It's, it's still educational for you. It's still, you know, relaxing fun or actually still it's educational, but it still relaxes. It's not an output activity. It's a, it's a being fed activity. It's a being recharged activity. That's something certainly for me that I'm highly motivated, motivated around right now is going back and reading the classics, reading the literature, and, and to be able to do that sometimes, listen to that, can be very relaxing as, as I'm going along uh, and, and doing other work. Creating routines. My wife and I built a routine where we would, you know, we'd go on a walk, you know, maybe for as much as an hour together. And at first, we didn't know how to do it. Not the walking part, but just like, well, what do we talk about? We have a hundred things we could talk about. Is this a kind of a business meeting? Is this a an you know, action meeting while we're walking. What, and, and it right. took, some, took some learning. It was a bit uncomfortable the first few times because we hadn't got clear expectations. And now we recognize it's much more like listening session. Like there's no formal agenda. There's no driving anything. It's just, hey, let's listen. And through it, you get so much more synced up because you're just hearing what each other are experiencing, thinking, feeling, and so on. It's become very cathartic emotional and physical benefits attached to it. Uh, you, you know, so, so these are sort of, I think, some of the examples. Um, I, I think if you're looking for additional motivation to be able to make the shift, I think that comes from recognizing that rest, recuperation, stillness operate like a slingshot. And when we do them, you know, if we have, let's say, a done for the day list so that mm-hmm. we actually know when we're done, uh, here are the important things. They are completed. Okay, that's done. I'm now, you know, shut the laptop, put off the phone. We're done with the work. And then after this, my wife and I call it no sneaky work, right? No, <laughs> no sitting in a hot tub and just being on your phone texting people. And, and, and it, it's like, no, take a, you know, you, you were actually taking a break. We're going to actually recuperate. And, and it's those, it's the construction of that life that balance, that let's say partnership, yes, partnership between the achievement work orientation and, and you know that has to be matched. That cannot go more deeply than your rest, recuperation, and stillness life. And, and if right now it is significantly out of balance, if somebody's saying, well, really it's like 99 to one, <laughs> Uh, then, then what they have without knowing it is a very, very short-term fragile s- strategy. Uh, they will not be able to sustain high performance for 50 years. But I, that's what I want. I don't want to peak this year. You know, I don't want to peak in the next three months and be like, okay, well, I got everything I possibly could get out of three months. I, 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 you know, I went into debt for the rest of my life to get through this thing. Right. I want to be able to make a contribution 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and maybe even 90s. I mean, people do this. One of my, one of my friends is, is writing, a, has co-authored a book with her, with her father, Stephen Covey, who passed away almost 10 years ago now. And she's just been finishing up a book that she worked with him before he passed away. And, and it's all about living life in crescendo. The, the idea that our greatest contribution always lies ahead of us, not behind us, is a deeply motivational idea to me. I love that idea. But the only way that can be possible is if we make different sets of trade-offs now and, and face the discomfort of, oh my goodness, I don't know how to be still. Oh my goodness, I don't know how to rest and relax. Well, face it because you need to be able to have that in rich abundance to be able to play the long game. Uh, and, 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 you know, the long game is the way to, is the, way to the greatest contribution.
Yeah. And, and what great uh, parting words. And I, I think that ties, you know, whether that's in personal life or in business, I mean, we all know it, it's about the long game. It's about building organizations that endure, not organizations to your point that just peak and then burn out. So I, I think um, there's a lot of great um, insights that you provided today for me and the listeners. So thank you so much for being on the show, Greg. And um, thanks for everything that, you know, you do and you contribute out to the world because I, you changed my life and, and my mindset. So I'm sure you You've had the same impact on so many people. And if you haven't got the book, if you haven't read the book, start with essentialism first. So you, ha- you have to get the package deal. So you start with essentialism, get that, read that first, and then go to effortless. And I, I think uh, these two books alone will absolutely change the way that you're living your life and the, the results that are corresponding to these efforts. So thank you. Steve, for, uh, what a, what a, what a pleasure. Uh, thank you for, thank you for being uh, taking the time and uh, your interest and, and passion for these subjects and for, for making such a contribution to the world. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.